afternoon, everybody. Nice to have you here with us. Uh, this is our motivational interviewing training. And we do, uh, we assume for this training that you've all had at least some didactic uh, training on motivational interviewing. And so what we're going to be doing today is a lot of me talking about concepts and then giving you guys a chance to practice them either in pairs or in small groups. Okay, so what we're gonna to cover today is we're gonna talk a little bit about motivation uh, and what motivation is. I'm gonna get your thoughts on what motivation is. We'll talk about ambivalence as being one of the central features of MI and one of the things that we work on to, toward resolving in the direction of change. There are a lot of the number four in MI. So we'll talk about the four aspects of the spirit of MI or the nature of the therapeutic relationship. We'll talk about four processes and four principles as well. Uh, and then we'll spend some time working on the four MI micro skills, also known as the ORs. Um, we'll then spend a little bit of time talking about a, a new program that we're offering called Text Message Extended Learning. Uh, where you can extend your learning from a single training on a particular topic, in this case, MI, uh, by signing up for a series of text messages. And I'll talk more about that when we get there. And then we'll integrate everything. We'll observe Dr. Bill Miller, uh, one of the founders of MI, uh, doing a uh, part of an intake with a uh, fairly non-communicative client and we will give you guys a chance to practice uh, in a role play or what we call a real play, which I'll explain more of when we get there uh, as well in terms of integration. And then we'll, we'll wrap up by talking a little bit about adapting MI to individuals with serious and persistent mental illness. Since you are all with DMH, I'm assuming that many of you, if not all of you, uh, do work with that population. And we thought it might be helpful to have some specific information about adapting MI a little bit uh, in terms of working with members of that population. Okay, so we'll start off and, and I'm gonna ask you to participate by using the chat box. So if you haven't already, please open up the chat box. And just what, what words or phrases come to mind when you hear the word motivation? What comes to mind? Drive, encouragement, good. Validating, good wanting to participate, engaging, push-ups, that's a good one, uh, goals, passion, supporting, enthusiasm, a willingness, hope. I think that's an important piece that we sometimes neglect. And dreams, okay, good. So a lot of good terms, all of, all of which are part of what we mean when we use the term motivation. And we'll define this a little more specifically in just a couple of minutes. We're gonna start off by looking at different helping styles. We're all in the business of helping people. And there are different styles of doing that. There's a directing style. That's kind of like, I know what you need to do. Here's how to do it, just go do it. We might get, provide someone a lecture or a list of things to do. Uh, there's a following style. Kind of a Carl Rogers, I trust that you have all your own wisdom within you. And I'm gonna kind of just stay with you while you work this out on your own. I'm gonna sit and listen. I'm gonna do some reflective listening, uh, but I'm pretty much gonna let you take the conversation where you want to take it. And then there's a guiding style. 
the guiding style incorporates elements of both the directive style and the following style. The directing style is appropriate when we're doing something like we're at our primary care clinic and the nurse is explaining how to take a new medication. That's very straightforward. It's very cut and dry. Um, and the directing style is appropriate there. The directing style doesn't always work so well when we're talking about behavior change. I'm going to show you a video clip uh, of a couple of my fellow trainers uh, role-playing a conversation between a counselor and a client. Uh, Andrew is on the right. He's going to be the counselor. Grant is on the left. He's going to be the client. And I want you to listen to what, what Andrew does with Grant. Um, he's going to use a, a fairly directing style. And pay attention to things that he does that you think may be not so helpful. Like I said, when we're talking about behavior change, uh, the directing style of helping people often isn't as effective as we might like it to be. So take a look at a few minutes of this. Hi, Grant. Thanks for coming in today. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, so as we get into this, I kind of just uh, wanted to see what it is that you wanted to talk about and, and what we might discuss. Well, the change goal that, that I've been kind of struggling with is exercise. Um, it's something that I, I used to be really, really good at. I was very consistent with it, and it's pretty much fallen off a cliff. And I, even before physical distancing, I had pretty much stopped, and I know I need to start again. Yeah. Yeah, it's really important that you stay healthy and, and make sure that you're you're exercising enough because you're not really doing anything now with social distancing. You're not out as much as you used to be. And so uh, you got you to gotta stay healthy. Yeah, and the, the thing is that time has never been the issue for me. Even before we were staying at home, I had plenty of time, but it was hard to kind of get back into the routine. It sounds like you have plenty of time, and so you just need to figure out what it is that you're going to do. What do you think you, you can do to exercise more with all the well, time that you have? Um, jogging is what I used to enjoy, and especially now since gyms are closed and whatnot, uh, it'd probably be starting to jog again. Yeah, that's that's a good idea. I mean, there, there are a lot of different things that you can do. Uh, besides jogging at home, I, I, there are a couple different resources that I've found uh, of like different quarantine activities uh, that you could do even if you just have a couple chairs in your house. You could do some different like push-ups and that sort of thing. And so you don't even really have to run if that's not something that, that you could do right now. Yeah, I, I, I so like like through, you know, I have some friends who do like Zoom workouts and stuff. Um, I, I just don't know how to access that. It's just something I don't know that much about. Yeah, that that sounds like a good option too. I mean, you could you could go on Zoom and you could do different workouts uh, with a group. You could also even just Google different workouts that you could do at home. And and uh, with all the time that you have, it'd be easy enough to just pick one or two and and find some way to to start doing that pretty quickly. I would think you, you wouldn't really have to put a lot of planning into it. Yeah, but here's here's the problem with that though is that the I it's the consistency is what's really hard. Like, you know, I'll go for a jog like once a month and be like, Ooh, I'm getting back into it. And then the next day comes around and then I'm still like, I, then I just start to procrastinate and make up excuses and then I don't get there. Now I really have no excuses, but that consistency is just what's really hard. Yeah. I'm, I mean, you, you have a ton of time right now, now that you're at home. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's the perfect time to start working out. That's the best time to really do the things that you're talking about so that you don't really feel lazy, so that you don't feel like you're being unhealthy. Uh, this is the perfect time to, to just get started and to, and to really, uh, pun intended, hit the ground running, even if you can't <laughs> necessarily run. Uh, just getting in there and, and thinking about how do I find a workout? How do I just get on Zoom? Uh, just starting the day off and saying, you know what, today I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm, I'm motivated to do it today. And I know that, that this is the day that I'm going to find that workout. I'm going to do what I can just to stay healthy. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to stop it there. What in the way that Andrew is interacting with Grant do you think might be not so helpful in terms of bringing about behavior change, bringing about the change that Grant is talking about. Uh, some good comments in the chat box, too, uh, that he's not listening to him and not taking into consideration where he is in the cycle of change. I think that's a really important uh, comment. He was almost like making him feel bad for not working out and having so much time. Yeah, there was almost a little bit of shaming going on as he was kind of giving orders instead of options. Yes, he was offering his own solutions instead of the clients and not addressing the barriers. Good. He was not encouraging and didn't validate the client's efforts. Good. I think he was judgmental. Uh, yeah, all of those, I think, are correct. And it's, I think, a, a good demonstration of why when we're talking about making major behavior change, and we're going to, today we're talking about, primarily talking about substance use. When we're trying to get somebody to change something like substance use, just telling them what they need to do, being very directive about it, isn't all that likely to be helpful. For one thing, many of the folks that we see have seen other professionals like us in the past and have heard the same things already. And so just hearing those same things again is not likely to uh, prompt them to take action. Okay, good comments, everybody. Uh, so the guiding style of helping, MI can be considered a, a subset uh, of a guiding helping style. We're gonna respect their decisions we're going to have them describe what is working ask them, instead of just not what's not working. Uh, ask them what their plan might be rather than us making them a list. Find out what's important to them. Why might this change be important to you? Have them talk about their health and their goals. Um, how do their goals relate to their overall health? How does the behavior change we're, that we're working on relate to their overall health? We might have them list the pros and cons of changing. Uh, it, the pros of changing would be change talk uh, that we could reflect back. The cons about making a change will tell us what are the barriers going to be? What are the obstacles going to be? Uh, and how do we need to help them address those? And ask what their goals are for treatment, because they may not be the same as ours, especially people coming into substance use treatment settings. Very often, we think their goal should be uh, abstinence. And they, if they agree to anything, they'll agree to maybe trying to cut down um, instead of trying to be abstinent. And so we need to work with them on what their treatment goals are rather than imposing our treatment goals. So motivational interviewing is a specialized subset of a guiding helping style. So it incorporates aspects of both the directing, because we do have a, a, a specific direction that we're moving in and a specific goal that we're working on but it also incorporates some of the following style because we're going to listen for the purpose of understanding the problem and the dilemma. 
what's the best way to facilitate change? It's, it's usually the carrot works better than the stick. Constructive behavior change comes from connecting with something valued and cherished and important to us. An intrinsic motivation for change comes out of an accepting, empowering, safe atmosphere where the painful present can be challenged. I think there's a lot of important language in that statement. Um, comes out of an accepting, empowering, I think of MI as being uh, an empowering sort of approach. We're trying to create a safe environment for people to talk about their, what's currently going on with them, uh, where they feel like they're not going to be judged, and where the painful present could be challenged. What do I mean by that? I mean that people coming into mental health and or substance use treatment settings, their present or aspects of their present are not happy. They're kind of painful, usually. Um, and yet, what are they doing to deal with that painful reality? Oftentimes, they're avoiding it. And one of the most common ways for people to avoid dealing with their painful present is by using substances to numb their emotions. So we want to create an accepting and empowering and safe space where they can talk about what's currently going on with them and, and where they feel like they can be honest with us. So MI is designed to enhance the client's own motivation to change. So their own motivation to change using strategies that are empathic and non-confrontational. So it's really the conceptual opposite of what the older, uh, historically the residential substance abuse treatment programs used to employ, which was a very sort of confrontational approach. Uh, MI is really kind of the conceptual opposite of that. So we're going to work toward empathy, understanding the world through their eyes, uh, and we're going to be non-confrontational. So in the most recent iteration of the MI uh, textbook, uh, Miller and Rolnick say this, MI is designed to strengthen personal motivation for and commitment to a specific goal by eliciting and exploring the person's own reasons for change within an atmosphere of acceptance and compassion. What strikes you as being important pieces in there, uh, important language in there, designed to strengthen, yeah, their own reasons for change, strengthen, right. So we're assuming if we're strengthening something that there's already something there to work with. So we want to help to elicit those reasons and then help them to explore those reasons and strengthen them. Acceptance and compassion, atmosphere of acceptance, right? Empower them, yes, exactly. And we have a specific goal. You know, we are working on something specific. Um, we're going to focus the conversation on that specific goal. And it needs to be their goal, as I said. So motivation, we used to think about motivation as being uh, a trait, like a personality trait. And it's either there or it's not there. Um, and we used to think about motivation as something that, as a trait that can't be modified. That's either somebody has it or they don't have it. If they don't have it, well, they need to probably just go away and maybe come back when they're feeling motivated. MI looks at motivation as being a little different from that. It looks at it as being more of a state rather than a trait. And a state is something that can change over time, and it's something that can be influenced. And so we're going to assume that motivation can be influenced by our style of interacting with someone. Um, motivation can be modified. And so our task is to elicit and enhance that motivation. 
And this last bullet point is challenging for some people. Uh, lack of motivation, what we used to say is a lack of motivation, is a challenge for the clinician's therapeutic skills rather than a fault for which to blame our clients. So that's saying, obviously, to some degree, motivation lies within someone, but we can help to identify it. Um, and if someone is being what we used to call resistant, means we need to kind of step back in the moment and say, okay, is there some way that I am being with this person that is evoking this resistant response from them? And could I maybe adapt the way, my way of being to be with them in a different way that evokes a different response from them? Ambivalence is feeling two ways about something or feeling more than one way about something. On one hand, I know this would be healthier for me if I were to make this change. On the other hand, there are a lot of reasons why it's really hard to do that. People, clients come into treatment with fluctuating and conflicting motivations. On one hand, they know they'd be healthier if they made this change. On the other hand, again, as I said, there are a lot of reasons that make it difficult to make that change. So working with ambivalence is really working with the heart of the problem. Uh, so we're gonna work with ambivalence and try to help them resolve their ambivalence in the direction of making the change. So we might say that MI is about arranging conversations so that people talk themselves into change based on their own values and interests. And very often by the time people come into mental health or substance use setting, treatment settings, they have lost touch with their values uh, and their, their sense of goals. Um, oftentimes they haven't had a, a good sense of their own values uh, in a number of years in many cases. And so one of the things that we can do to is to help them to regain a sense of connection with their values uh, and their interests. Um, we're going to do a, an activity. So here's what you're going to do. In, there was a uh, a PDF attached to the confirmation email and Victoria has just pasted the link to that PDF in the chat box in case you don't have it. Hopefully you were able to download that and print it out so that you have it in front of you or hopefully at least some of you do. What I'd like you to do is there's a whole list of values. And what I'd like you to do is on your own, first step is on your own, sort the values into two categories, what's important to you and what's not so important to you and then maybe identify your top three to five values. What's important to you? And then have a discussion with your group members about your values and their values and ask the questions of each other. What are your top values? What is important about those values for you? Which values are less important to you? And this fourth question is really important to try to get to. What is something you feel like you could do in your everyday life that would align with your values that you're not already doing. So try to get through this list of questions. And I think that question number four, um, what's something you could do today that would align with your values? Self-care is I think more important than ever these days. Um, we've all been working in very challenging situations for the last year. And I think to the extent that we can, we ought to be focusing on self-care uh, and doing what's going to um, help us to replenish ourselves. Um, so paying attention, um, definitely if we have a tendency to act without thinking, um, that would speak to being a little more, a bit more mindful. 
stopping to think and consider uh, before we act. Or if we're in a session with a client, stopping to step back in the moment and maybe think a little bit about what we're going to say next with a client. Um, can you all see how doing an exercise like this with a client, maybe shortly after intake, um, could be useful, especially somebody who's coming in who has been, let's say, using substances for quite a while um, and has really kind of lost touch with their own sense of values. If we can help them to reconnect with their values, then we can probably help them to connect with their own sense of motivation as well. Okay, so the underlying spirit of MI, there are four components of it. Partnership, the easy way to remember this is the acronym PACE, P-A-C-E. Partnership, acceptance, compassion, and evocation. And the idea is, is that we're, the context of the therapeutic relationship, it contains all of these elements. So partnership, we're forming a collaborative relationship with our clients rather than the, the traditional hierarchical relationship of, you know, I'm the healthcare provider, you're the patient. Uh, it's meeting people where they are. Uh, we might think of it as an active collaboration between experts because people are, uh, to an extent, experts in themselves. Hopefully, we're, we have some expertise with what we do. MI is done for and with someone, not to or on someone. Occasionally, I'll hear someone say, well, you know, I was doing MI on this client. It, it's not something that we're doing on uh, a client. It's something that we're doing with a client or for a client. It's really more, it's more like dancing rather than wrestling. The minute we get into an argument uh, where they're arguing that they don't have a problem, we're arguing that they do have a problem, we get into that wrestling match, we're not likely to get very far with people. So we're gonna talk about rolling with resistance a little bit later. Um, and it, needs, it requires that we have an awareness and honesty regarding our own values and agenda. It's important that we not project our own values onto a client. It's important that we're aware of what our own values are. Acceptance, absolute worth, assuming that everyone has a, an absolute worth uh, I think Carl Rogers used the word prizing a lot, prizing the inherent worth and potential of, of each person. Part of this is empathy. It's an active interest in someone and an active effort to understand the other person's perspective, to be able to see the world through their eyes. And that requires some reflective listening, which we'll spend some time on a little bit later. But listening for the purpose of understanding. Autonomy. Carl Rogers, this definitely comes from Carl Rogers, uh, complete freedom to be and to choose. So we know that we can have a significant impact on our clients, but ultimately people are going to make their own choices and we need to allow them the autonomy to make those choices, even when we don't necessarily agree with them. And affirmations, we'll talk about affirmations a little bit more a little bit later. Um, we want to try to find and acknowledge and validate the client's strengths and their efforts. We're gonna use affirmations as one of the micro skills. Um, and we're gonna to try to find things to affirm a client for, and it might be just that they managed to get to their appointment today. You know what, you've got to, everything else is going pretty bad in your life, but you got yourself here today. 
good job for, for doing that. Compassion, I think we probably all understand compassion uh, to actively promote someone else's welfare, uh, to give priority to someone else's needs and remembering that our services are for our consumer's benefit uh, rather than our own. And then evocation, assuming that you have what you need and together we're gonna find it. So MI is a strengths focused perspective. We're assuming people already have within them much of what is needed and our job is to evoke it, to call it forth, to call forth the best of them, if you will. The MI practitioner is very interested in understanding the consumer's perspective and their own wisdom. So we want to try to evoke that um, and then strengthen it. We want to focus and understand the consumer's strengths and resources rather than probing for their deficits. Okay, going to do another activity, and I'd like you, the idea with this is to try to experience the four aspects, or at least some of the aspects of the spirit of MI, where ordinarily we do this by putting people into pairs. Because so many of you are not on camera, and I don't know if you have microphones, we're going to put you in groups of three. And what I'd like you to do is take turns being the speaker and the listener, um, and when you, so for, you'll, the two of you will be uh, role-playing or real-playing, and one of you will be an observer, and then we'll say switch roles, and someone else can be the speaker, someone else can be the listener, and someone else can be the observer. So when you're being the speaker, think about, try to think about something that's real for you. So something that's real, but that you feel comfortable talking about in a professional setting. Something that you want to change, something you need to change, something you should change, you feel like, where you've been thinking about changing, but you haven't done it yet. In other words, something you're ambivalent about. Some sort of health-related behavior works well for this exercise. So it might be changing diet, might be changing exercise, it might be quitting smoking, um, something along those lines. As the listener, you're going to have these questions in the chat box to look at. Ask these open-ended questions. So why do you want to make this change? How might you go about it in order to succeed? In other words, how might you do it? What are the three best reasons for you to do it? And how important is it for you to make this change and why? And then give a short summary of the speaker's motivation for change. And then ask them, so what do you think you're gonna do about this? So you're using open-ended questions. And what I'd like you to do is when, you, as the speaker, try to notice when you are experiencing any of the four characteristics of the spirit of MI. So partnership, acceptance, compassion, and evocation. And pay attention to how it makes you feel. So the idea is to get a sense of what does the spirit of MI actually feel like. Okay, anybody like to share a little bit about your experience? Did you experience any of the aspects of the spirit of MI and, and how did it make you feel? Okay, great. So motivating yourself is, is kind of like what we're trying to do. We're trying to facilitate that state of mind where people are, people's own motivation is coming to the surface. I said my group members are very supportive. Good. Okay, let's go back to slides. We'll do a few more slides and then we'll take our break. So this notion that people are more likely to engage in a course of action if they themselves have come to the conclusion that they need to do it rather than if they're being lectured by somebody or told by somebody that they need to do it, isn't a new idea. 
been around for a long time. Uh, a guy named Blaise Pascal was a 17th century mathematician and philosopher. And he said, people are better persuaded by the reasons they themselves discovered than those that come into the minds of others. Basically saying the same thing, that people need to come to their own conclusions uh, and we need to help evoke their own reasons for change rather than providing them with a list of reasons why they ought to change or should change. Okay, so there are four uh, processes in MI, engaging, focusing, evoking, and planning. Engaging, we're building the relationship. We're in any given conversation, we're doing some level of engaging. We're building the relationship, establishing trust and empathy uh, and acceptance and a partnership and really working on uh, building the relationship. Focusing, we've got a specific goal that we wanna work on. So we need to identify what that goal is Again, that should be the client's goal uh, rather than our goal for them, or at least at the very least be a collaborative goal so that we can focus the conversation on that specific piece. Evoking, we've already kind of said, we're evoking someone's own reasons for change. So evoking their own motivation for change um, and, and evoking their own sense of values uh, and goals as well. And then planning taking a larger goal and breaking it down into small bite-sized pieces um, that people can do on a daily basis, if possible. Um, we're trying to give people the experience of success in MI. And so if we break something down into pieces that they can accomplish on a daily basis, people can, can experience success on a daily basis that starts to build a sense of self-efficacy. Well, okay, you know what, gee, maybe I really can do this. Um, and that's what we're trying to do. Uh, we're going to use this uh, car on a highway metaphor. And we're going to say that we are, the car is the spirit of MI. And we are in the car with the client uh, surrounded by the spirit of MI. So the, the relationship essentially. And we're on this highway of processes. And in any given conversation, if we're, if we're engaging and we're focusing and we're evoking, we're doing MI. Um, in any given conversation, we may or may not get to planning uh, and Miller and Rolnick say that that's okay. Uh, in any given conversation, we may or may not get to the planning stage. Where do we start? What we do depends on where the client is in the process of changing. Uh, and the first step is to be able to identify where they are um, we used to think about this in earlier iterations of MI, I used to think about this in terms of the trans-theoretical stages of change model. Um, I'm sure you've heard the terms pre-contemplation, contemplation, determination, action. Um, and in more recent iterations of MI, they emphasize that a little bit less and instead emphasize evoking change talk. So change talk is anything that sounds like there's a reason to change, there's a desire to change, they have the ability to change, et cetera. Um, and so part of what we're doing is we're evoking not only their sense of motivation, their goals for change and their reasons for change, but we're evoking what we call change talk. Um, and there, there are broadly two categories of change talk, preparatory change talk and mobilizing change talk. 
preparatory change talk, we're, we're just kind of starting to think about change. We might be starting to kind of move in that direction, but we're not taking action just yet. Um, and here uh, we're doing mostly engaging and focusing on that side of the pyramid. And then on the other side, we've got mobilizing change talk, uh, where we're actually moving toward action. And easy way to remember uh, an acronym for the different levels of change talk is uh, DARN CAT. And so DARN goes up the left side of the pyramid and it's desire for change. Uh, do they have the ability? Do they feel like they have the ability to change? Are there reasons for them to change? Is there a need for them to change? And then moving down the mobilizing change talk side of the pyramid, it's CAT, uh, commitment, activation, and taking steps. So on the mobilizing change talk side, they're actually talking about, okay, how can we plan this out? How can I plan some steps that I'm going to actually take? All right, we'll talk about the principles of MI and then we'll take our break. So MI is founded on four basic principles, express empathy, develop discrepancy, roll with resistance, and support self-efficacy. Expressing empathy, we've already been talking about, uh, trying to understand the, the world through the client's eyes, understand their perspective uh, on their own life and what they've experienced and, and are experiencing. Developing discrepancy refers to a discrepancy between their more deeply held values and goals and their current behavior. So on one hand, you're telling me that you want to go back to school or you want to be able to work again. Uh, on the other hand, you're still using meth every day. Help me make sense of that. There's a discrepancy there. Uh, help me try to make sense of that. We have to be very careful how we say something like that, because if there's a note of sarcasm in our voice, we're dead in the water. So we have to actually ask a question like that out of genuine curiosity. You know, it helped me to make sense of this. On one hand, you're saying you have this goal. On the other hand, you're using meth every day. Help me make sense of that. Rolling with resistance. Rather than getting into a confrontation uh, and pushing back uh, when a client is resistant, we're going to step back, as I was talking about earlier, and look at how are we being in this relationship with this client that might be contributing to eliciting a resistant sort of response from them. Um, how might I change my way of being with them in order to elicit a different response? Might say something along the lines of, okay, I can understand how it seems that way from your perspective. Um, would it be okay if I share with you a slightly different perspective, slightly different way of looking at it, um, something along those lines. And then supporting self-efficacy. As I said, we want to break goals down into small pieces, uh, set goals for each day so that people can start to build a sense of self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is like self-confidence. Uh, plus, do I have a sense of if I want to uh, accomplish this goal, do I feel like I have the necessary knowledge and skills and experience to be able to do it uh, and support to be able to do it? And so if we can help give people the experience of success on a daily basis, it will start to build a sense of self-efficacy and hope. Um, gee, you know what? Maybe I really can do this. Okay, so if we take this concept of the four principles, the four processes, and the spirit of MI, and we put them all together uh, with this car metaphor, um, it's like we are on a highway we're in the car surrounded by the spirit of MI with the client. We're on the highway. 
of MI processes and the principles kind of form our roadmap, how we are going to get to where we want to go. We're going to employ those principles. And the way that we do that is by using the micro skills or the ORs, uh, otherwise known as the ORs. So the micro skills are open-ended questions, affirmations, reflective listening, and summarizing. You guys are probably familiar with these at this point. So open-ended questions, hard to answer with just a yes or no. They call for a more descriptive response. They contain an element of surprise. We don't really know what the patient or client is going to say. They can be conversational door openers that encourage the patient or client to talk. Uh, let's go through a little quiz and just put in the chat box an O or a C for each of these, uh, whether you think it's an open-ended question or a closed-ended question. So don't you think your drinking is part of the problem? Open-ended or closed-ended? I'm seeing some Cs closed. Good, so that's a closed-ended question. So it also comes across as kind of judgmental. Tell me about when you were able to quit smoking. How about that one? Yeah, it's not exactly a question. It's tell me about, but it's going to serve the same purpose as an open-ended question. How's it going with managing your pain meds? Yeah, that's open. Any generally speaking, how questions are going to be open-ended questions. Do you know you might die if you don't stop using? Yeah, that's closed-ended and again, comes across as pretty judgmental. Uh, what do you want to do about your drinking? What do you want to do about your drinking is how I might phrase that. Yeah, that's an open-ended question, good. And can you tell me what you know about your heart condition? This is kind of a trick question. It's asking, can you tell me what you know about your heart condition. So somebody could say, no, I can't tell you. They could just say no, meaning no, I can't tell you what I know about my heart condition. Uh, we could very easily make it an open-ended question by just simply making it, tell me what you know about your heart condition or what do you know about your heart condition? Uh, what typically uh, questions that start with what or why um, or how are open-ended questions. So open-ended questions help keep the person talking. We're just trying to continue the conversation. Tell me about your drug use. What's that like for you? What was your life like before you started drinking? How do you want things to end up when you're done with supervision? Where would you like to be? What other ideas do you have? What else might work for you? Encourages more thought about what the person is saying. What concerns do you, your wife, husband, partner, girlfriend uh, have about your drinking? or a parent, uh, how has this caused trouble for you? What do you think might happen if you got another positive urinalysis? If you did go ahead and finish the class, how would, that, how would that make things better for you? So open-ended open questions, affirmations is the second of the micro skills. Um, and we're really just talking about positive reinforcement, essentially. Um, it has to be authentic. So it can't be cheerleading, can't be, oh, awesome job, dude. That's not MI. Um, it, we can support and promote confidence and a sense of self-efficacy with affirmations. We can acknowledge the client's challenges. 
we can do what somebody was talking about earlier in, in terms of validating the client's experiences and feelings. And reinforcing successes reduces discouragement and hopelessness. So we want to reinforce those successes. Somebody was in a, a difficult situation, high risk situation, and they didn't use uh, alcohol or drugs. Awesome. How did you manage to do that? Catch them doing something right. Very often people, especially people who have been stuck in the mental health system, the criminal justice system, substance use treatment system for a while, they're accustomed to feeling like we're all trying to catch them doing something wrong. So let's flip that around a little bit and try and catch them doing something right. So support their persistence, recognize an effort that was made to do something, assist them in seeing the positives of the situation. So maybe do a little positive reframing, support their strengths, um, help them acknowledge their own strengths and recognize their own strengths and support their confidence. Some questions to guide you in forming affirmations. What successes, even little ones, have you had in the past? And then affirm those successes. If your best friend was describing your strengths, what would they say? And then affirm those strengths. Or what are the qualities that describe you when you're at your best? Same thing. They can tell us what they are. Great. Those are some real strengths. We can reinforce something that they've done or intended to do. Might be something simple like, thanks for talking to me. I know it's hard to talk to a stranger about this kind of stuff. You're aware of what you need. Good, that's a real strength. You're surviving out here. That says a lot about you. You took the time to come in today. Again, could be they just relapsed. Everything in their lives could be miserable, but they're still there to see you today. Thanks for making it here. I appreciate the fact that you made it here today. We can call attention to something admirable or interesting. So you care, about a lot, you care a lot about your kids and you want to make sure they're safe. You're strong, you're courageous. Uh, you're the kind of person who speaks up when something bothers you and that's a real strength. You're courageous. It's hard to face all of this at one time. Highlight their successes. How did you do this? How did you know that that would work? You know, a lot of people on parole never seem to get it together but you've really found a way to make it happen. How did you manage to do that? So we want to use them thoughtfully. Praise and cheerleading is not MI. So like I said, the awesome job dude comment is not MI. Uh, we want to think about using affirmations. We don't want to necessarily use them liberally, although I do try to find something to affirm a, a client for whenever I see them. Uh, try to find at least one thing. You don't necessarily need to use them liberally, uh, but you can find one thing to affirm them for. Um, use specific concrete affirmations that are based on specific strengths or specific efforts that they made to do something. Okay, going to switch gears for a minute um, and talk about this learner extension program. Um, what this is, is we know that people tend to not change their counseling behavior as a result of attending one training. And so with the, according to the principles of adult learning, we need some ongoing reminders uh, and uh, teaching to sustain, to actually make and sustain changes in the way that we interact with our clients. So this is a text message program. Uh, and you're going to essentially, I'll tell you exactly what it's going to look like in a minute, but it's, you get 31 
text messages over a 10-week period. Uh, they might help with motivation. It might be something like, remember the best reflections capture the client's meaning. They can help with skills or ideas or planning. Uh, try to elicit commitment statements today. Ask what's your first step toward doing something. Uh, and they can be reminders about action. Uh, focus on summaries. This helps the client remember what you talked about. So they're very short. They're you know one or two lines. Um, and you get them over a 10-week period. You would opt in using a keyword, and then you get a welcome message. Uh, there's troubleshooting assistance, which I think, uh, and frequently asked questions, which I believe Victoria uh, attached to the confirmation email that you should have received. Uh, 31 SMS text messages over a 10-week period, and the 11th week is a, uh, a message to complete an evaluation. It's 26 specific MI skills reminders, tips, and challenges. The messages come during weekdays at 9 a.m., 10 a.m., or 2 p.m., and then in the 11th week, as I said, you get a link to the text messenger utility questionnaire to evaluate the program and let us know what you thought of it. Um, I've actually done this myself. I found, I found it actually extraordinarily useful to get those reminders uh, on a daily basis um, because it, it does really make you more conscious of trying to implement some of these skills and strategies. So what it might look like is something like this. Day one, you opt in today, you get a message, thanks for subscribing to the text message learning series. One minute after opt-in, over the next 10 weeks, you'll get a variety of tips and challenges to help you implement MI in your practice. And then maybe day one, not at 6 p.m., but sometime in the morning, empathy means showing a deep understanding of the client's perspective, plus one day at 9 a.m. Tip, the best reflections capture the client's meaning. Uh, plus five days at 9 a.m. MI challenge, focus on summaries today. This helps clients remember what you discussed. Uh, six days in, this week make a conscious effort to use at least two reflections for every question, uh, which I think is a good one. Plus seven days, hi, jot down some observations about how MI spirit helped to engage a new client. So thinking of making you think about how in particular you use the spirit of MI with a new client. Uh, or plus nine days, try to ask more open than closed questions. This pattern helps clients to talk. Uh, it's one-way texting. Your information is kept confidential. Uh, prepaid phone plans or data limits will apply if you've got a limit on text messages. And you can opt out any time by texting stop to the number. Um, and so what I would suggest is that you opt in now. You, since you can opt out at any time, um, try opting in now and see what you think of it. In order to do that, um, we, you need to do a couple of things. You need to text R9MI to 484848, and you need to send Victoria at UCLA Tech Support, send her a direct chat with your cell phone number. Uh, if you didn't provide your cell phone number during the registration for the training, So by texting nine, uh, R9MI to 484848, you're agreeing to receive the MI learning extenders and you get permission to receive one-way text messages. So I'll leave that up here for a minute so you can do it. You should get a welcome message right away uh, as soon as you send the first text. And if you haven't already, as I said, uh, direct message Victoria with your cell phone number 
as I said, I've done this myself. I thought when we started it uh, a while ago, and I thought it was very helpful. Okay, going to assume that if you wanted to do this, that you have probably done it by now. Uh, you might want to add 484848 to your cell phone contact list. Um, there is a frequently asked questions document uh, that you should have received with your confirmation email and that you will also get on the follow-up email along with troubleshooting tips. Uh, and it helps us if you complete the evaluation at the conclusion of the 10 weeks of text messages. So I hope you do that and I hope it's helpful. Okay, reflective listening, which is kind of the core of establishing empathy with a client. Reflective listening is used to check out whether we really understood the client, used to highlight the client's own motivation for change about their substance use or whatever other problematic behavior we may be addressing with them. Uh, can be used to steer the client toward a greater recognition of his or her problems and concerns and reinforce statements indicating that the client is thinking about change or that's the change talk that we were talking about earlier. Uh, when we hear change talk, we want to reflect it back so that they've heard it uh, from us as well as from themselves. In the communication cycle between two people, there are a number of places where things can go wrong. There's what the client means and what the client actually says, which are not always necessarily the same thing. Uh, and then there's what the clinician hears and there's what the clinician thinks he or she heard. And something, things can go wrong anywhere in this uh, process. And what we want to have done, we want one to equal four for accurate empathy. We want to have what we think we heard to be what the client actually meant and reflective listening is going to help us with this. Okay, what it is not. So as healthcare providers broadly defined, most of us were trained to listen for the purpose of diagnosing and fixing a problem. Um, that's kind of what we got trained to do. Um, reflective listening is not that. Reflective listening is listening just for the purpose of trying to understand what's going on and understand the client's perspective. Uh, okay, so there are different levels of reflective statements and reflections are statements rather than questions. What we're really trying to do is, is clarify that we understood what the client was saying and what they meant. So there's simple reflections where we essentially more or less just repeat back what they've said Complex reflections, we're taking a guess as to the underlying meaning. Uh, and that often is reflecting an emotion. So what the guy in the video said there at the end, that sounds really hard, that sounds really difficult. That, that was reflecting the underlying emotion. Um, so that was a complex reflection. And then double-sided reflections that capture both sides of the ambivalence. So on one hand, you're telling me this, on the other hand, you're doing that. Give you some examples of these. Uh, the client says, I'm so tired of this life. I've tried to get clean so many times, it only works for a little while, then I'm out using again and it's worse than before. I don't know what to do. So a simple reflection might be something like these two. You're so tired of using and you don't know what to do about it. Or every time you start using again, it gets worse and you don't know what to do. A complex reflection might be one of these. You're so tired of getting high and you're confused as to how to get out of this. <clears throat> or every time you relapse, it gets worse and you don't know if you'll, be, if you'll be able to stop. You're afraid you'll always be hooked on meth. 
you're we're reflecting some of the underlying feeling. An amplified reflection is a type of complex reflection where we're emphasizing the client's point and adding a little bit of intensity. You're so discouraged about staying clean, you're not sure you should even bother trying anymore. Uh, or every time you relapse, it gets worse, so why even bother trying? Double-sided reflections, we're capturing both sides of the, of the ambivalence. So on one hand, you wanna get clean, on the other hand, you're not sure if you can, or it's a real struggle for you to stay off drugs. And at the same time, you know, it's important for you to keep trying. So we're getting both sides of the ambivalence. On one hand, you know, you need to do this or you want to do this. On the other hand, you're not sure that you can. Complex reflections take continuing the thought. We're taking a guess at what they really mean or what they really feel. Uh, everyone should just relax. I'm doing the best I can finding a job. Uh, what might be a good complex reflection for that, those two statements. I might reflect it, the underlying feeling. Sounds like you're feeling kind of frustrated about how everybody is treating you about finding a job. I don't know how I'm gonna pay all these fines. What the heck do these people expect of me? So again, try reflecting the, the underlying emotion, what the underlying emotion might be. Sounds very stressful, good. Wow, sounds like you are working hard in finding a job, that's great. Okay, so that combines a reflection with an affirmation. And you're frustrated with people in your life wanting you to get a job, you're doing your best. Yeah, very good. Okay, double-sided reflection. I know it might not be good for me, but it's the only thing that helps me sleep. So what, how could we use a double-sided reflection there? On one side, you notice that it's not good for you, and on the other, it's helping you to sleep. Yeah, it can be as simple as that. So on one hand, you don't know any other ways to get to sleep, on the other hand, you know that it's, it's not so helpful for you. Uh, sounds like you're having trouble sleeping. I know that can be difficult. Have you talked to your doctor about this? Okay, so that's following a reflection. The reflection is sounds like you're having trouble sleeping. I know that can be difficult. That kind of affirms what has been said. And then have you talked to your doctor about this is kind of a closed-ended question, um, which we might want to avoid. So the first two parts of what you said are good. Uh, I know that it's a bad idea to keep secrets from my family. I'm just so tired of them judging me. Often people will talk about hiding their substance use from their family. Going back to the, the, the other one, on one hand, you want to stop, but on the other hand, it helps you sleep. Anybody have a good double-sided reflection for this one? I know that it's a bad idea to keep secrets from my family. I'm just so tired of them judging me. Sounds like you feel like your family won't approve, but you're concerned about them judging you. Okay, yeah, that's on the right track. So on one hand, you know that it's not so helpful to keep secrets. On the other hand, you're getting really sick and tired of feeling like your family is judging you. It says it sounds like you want to tell your family about your substance use, but you don't want to feel judged. Okay, so that might be a good way to frame it. So again, we're just trying to demonstrate that we're understanding what's being said and continue the conversation and deepen the conversation if possible. So on one hand, you wanna be honest with your family, but on the other hand, you're tired of feeling judged by them. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, I'm so tired of feeling this way, my depression is taking over my life. Well, you could take your meds and stop drinking, that might help. Mm, that's probably not so helpful. Uh, that's not listening, it's kind of judgmental. Uh, I would, might like to tell him what he needs to do, stop drinking, complete treatment, really apply himself this time, take his medication but I need to understand, how does he feel? Why is he tired? Does he mean that he's unsure if he'll ever be able to feel normal? 
Does he feel overwhelmed with his life? Does he feel inadequate about his ability to cope? Does he not want to be on medication? Okay, now let's take one of those, some of those questions and make them into reflections. So life is overwhelming right now and you feel like you don't have the ability to cope. Or you're worried that you may not feel normal again. Or you're scared that this is really affecting your relationship with your wife. Now there wasn't anything in the original statement about his wife, um, but what we're gonna do is we're gonna, we're gonna use all of the knowledge that we have about this person in forming our reflections. We're not necessarily just going to stay with what's being said in the immediate moment. We can take our knowledge uh, of the client and use that, integrate that uh, in forming our reflections. Okay, I think we're going to, in the interest of time, I think we're gonna skip this activity um, and watch this video clip. So this is Dr. Bill Miller, one of the founders of MI. He's doing an intake with a client who clearly doesn't want to be there um, and is pretty non-communicative. And he really just does reflective listening. He asks a few questions, but the majority of what he does is just reflective listening. So I want you to, to get a sense of uh, how much he's able to draw out of this client just using reflective listening. John, you called up and uh, indicated that you'd like to talk to someone here, and so I'd like to know how I might be helpful to you. Uh, had to come because of uh, problems. So some problems you've been having and someone has made you come here? Yeah. You're not too happy about that. I just like to take care of my own problems. So talking to somebody else about them is is hard. It's not something you're used to doing. No. And yet. Someone else has said you need to be here. Tell me a little bit about that. My wife, she's uh, she wants to um, you know she works and I work and take care of the kids together. She wants to go back and go back to school, you know, study to be a nurse or something. I don't think she needs to. That seems silly to you. We're just doing okay. You like things the way they are yeah. now, and that feels like a real big change. Yeah. Some things about it in particular that you don't like. It's just everything's okay. So why change? Why, yeah. Why mess it up? Things are going along okay, and now she wants to get some more school, get some more education, and and that's it's disturbing. It uh, changes things. 
She's got the kids, you know. She's got her job. She already has enough to keep her busy. I think so, but she don't, so we, we argue. You're happy with the way things are. She's, yeah. not, she's not quite satisfied with how things are, and she wants something else. She wants to get some education. And that's not okay with you. She says things will be better. Like, I can, you know, I can see that, I guess, but... I don't, she's got plenty to do, you know, we got, everything's okay. She just keeps on and on about it, I just. It's really important to her. I guess, just, sometimes I just wish she'd shut up, you know. Your, your word may be that things will be worse if she goes back to school, that somehow it won't be as good as it is now. Yeah. I mean, you, you, she would go back to school and, you know, flunk out. Or she might go back to school and decide she don't want nothing no more. She don't want no family. So one thing that might happen that would hurt a lot. If she went back to school, she might decide she didn't want to be with you any longer. That, that's a, Notice that's, that's a the word. first time the client looks up. And she's really important to you. Yeah. So in a way, it's not her getting the education that, that troubles you. It's how that may affect your relationship. So, you know, she's smart enough, you know. Yeah. Doesn't need any more. Yeah. Sometimes, she, sometimes she's too smart. Already. Yeah. What other kinds of troubles are there? It sounds like that's that's one piece of it. What else is happening? She just goes on and on about it, you know. Just I try to eat and she talks about it. Try to sleep and she talks about it. I come home from work and she talks about it. I'm just like, oh man. So it's like nagging, it's just constantly there. It seems to be, I mean, I, I, And you get real angry about that. Yeah. She just doesn't know when to stop. Even though you're you're feeling angry about it, she just keeps pushing. She keeps. Uh, yeah, I tell her yeah. enough. Still, she keeps talking about it. Yeah. yeah. 
and, and what is it that has happened that uh, has caused someone to say you need to be here? Was it your wife that, that said you need to come here? I told her to, you know, to, to stop. <laughs> I told her, you know, she wouldn't. I was tired, you know, I was tired. Come home from work and I was tired. You kind of got pushed to the limit. Hmm? Yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of slapped her, you know. And that's, that's what led to your being here when you hit her. Yeah, yeah. I guess somebody heard. I guess, I guess somebody saw. I don't know. They called the cops. And the police came around. Yeah. They told me. Asked me if I'd been drinking. I told them I hadn't. Asked me if I was doing other junk, and I said, no, man. And then finally talked to one of them and said, I need to get some, you know, I need to see somebody. Mm -hmm. What did you notice about Dr. Miller's interaction with this client who was clearly reluctant to talk? Didn't rush any responses, good. As he was empathic, non-judgmental. Yeah, if you notice his body language, the tone of his voice, the volume of his voice, all of those things, he really mirrored the client um, in terms of how he was speaking. That's a, a really good observation. I thought a, a good complex reflection was when he said, and, and that makes you real angry. Um, the client hadn't said anything about getting angry at that point, um, but it was a good read of the underlying emotion that was probably there for the client. Okay, summaries are the final micro skill. Um, we could think of them as a collection of reflections or a collection of change talk, if you will, um, that we are presenting back to the client. I like to think of it as I've listened to several verbal paragraphs and now I'm going to, in a couple of sentences, just summarize what I've heard reflected back to the client to make sure that I've understood them uh, and to communicate to them that I've been listening and that I'm understanding them. They can be used to link uh, different subtopics together in what we're talking about. They can also be used to transition to whatever the next subtopic might be. Um, but essentially think of summaries as being reflections uh, and we're going to, it's gonna be two or three sentences at a time we're just gonna summarize what we've heard. Okay, a couple of other techniques that are used in MI. So the, the readiness ruler uh, you may be aware of, maybe familiar with, uh, on a scale of one to 10, how important do you think it might be for you to cut down on your drinking or to stop your drinking? Uh, typically on these questions, the answers range from four to six for most people. And so then we're going to ask, so why didn't you give it a lower number? What are people expecting us to ask them? Why didn't you give it a higher number? Which implies that it's not important enough to them. If instead I say, how come you didn't give it a lower number? I'm getting, to think of, getting them to think about what makes it important enough to give it a five. 
um, what's, what is it that makes it that important? So get, getting them to think about the reasons uh, why it might be important. And then what would it take to bump that up from a five to a six or a seven? Not what would it take to raise that from a five to a 10? That's asking them to go too far. But what in a very sort of casual tone of voice, okay, great. So what would it take to bump that up from a five to a six or seven maybe? See if they can think of one more reason why it might be important for them to make this change. And then another couple of follow-up questions are, what number might your spouse, your partner, your mother, your father uh, give for you to make this change? And typically that is a higher number than what they stated for themselves. So that might be a seven, let's say. Okay, great. So why do you think his or her number would be that high? Well, because my mom thinks X, Y, and Z. Um, and often they're able to come up with another reason why it might be important to make this change coming from somebody else's perspective. This is the decisional balance that I mentioned earlier. Here we have our ambivalent woman again. Um, and we're going to uh, have a conversation. We do uh, expert training, uh, screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment in primary care settings, in emergency departments, college health centers. Uh, and one of the things that we do is in the brief intervention, this is one of the things that we have them, the healthcare provider do in the brief intervention, uh, is have this conversation. So tell me some of the good things about your methamphetamine use or your prescription opioid use. What are people expecting? Again, we're trying to do something they're not expecting. People are expecting us to lecture them on why it's so bad for them, right? Because that's probably what everybody else in the healthcare system has done to them. So instead, I'm going to ask them, what are the good things about your meth use? What does it do for you? Communicate to them that I'm genuinely trying to understand them. Then once I have a sense of that, okay, I'll, then I'll summarize that, reflect it back to them, and then ask, okay, so now what are some of the not so good things about your meth use? What's not so helpful about it? Um, we're going to phrase it that way, not so good, instead of bad or negative consequences, uh, because it sounds a little less judgmental. Um, and it is everything in MI is really designed to lower people's defenses rather than raising them. So it's done in a, in a very uh, almost informal kind of casual way and tone of voice. Okay, so now I understand what it does for you. Now, what are some of the not so good things about it? And then what would be some of the not so good things about cutting down or stopping? Um, what information is that going to get us? It's going to get us, what are the problems going to be? What are the obstacles going to be that we may need to help them overcome? And then what would be some of the good things about cutting down or stopping? We want to wind up the conversation on the side of what would be good about cutting down or stopping. So that's a, that's a pros and cons kind of conversation um, that you can have in five minutes. Uh, with a client if you need to, if you only have that much time. Okay, gonna put it all together. We're gonna pair you back up again, actually gonna put you back in groups of three again, uh, in the hopes that at least two of you are able to talk to each other. As the speaker, talk about either your own dilemma that you identified earlier, that you talked about earlier, or role play one of the clients that the groups developed in the open-ended questions activity. Might be easiest just to talk about your own dilemma again. As the listener, you're gonna have 10 minutes to establish a strong alliance with your client and develop a thorough understanding of them. 
So use as many open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries as possible, and talk with your client until you can answer the following questions. And I don't want you to just ask these questions. I want you to talk with them until you're able to answer these questions. What does your client want to change? What would be the benefits of changing? What will be the challenges in making this change? How might they go about making the change? And how confident are they that they can do it? Um, we're going to give you 10 minutes to real play this or role play it, whichever you choose to do. Uh, and then you'll see a message come across the top of the screen that it's time to switch roles again. And at that point, you could switch roles between the speaker and the listener. Um, we'll give you another 10 minutes. And then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about uh, adapting MI to the seriously mentally ill population. And then we will wrap up. Okay, if we had a little more time, I would ask for more uh, sharing. But since we are running a little bit low on time, I'm going to go back to the slides and finish this up for you guys. So what if no commitment to change is made? Need to accept it. We need to empathize that ambivalence can be hard to resolve in a single session. Uh, ask might ask how the client will manage the consequences of not making a decision or of continuing their substance use and ask if there's anything else that will help with the decision, like having more time, more information, et cetera. People aren't always going to make a commitment to change as a result of one conversation. Um, leave the door open. So in summary, it seems like at the moment, you don't want to change this behavior, but if you want to talk about it further at some point, or if you decide that it's starting to cause you problems, please feel free to come and see me again and we can talk about this further. You are using MI if you talk less than your client does. If you, and I think we got the ratio wrong on this one actually, offer one reflection for every three questions. Should be more reflections actually than that. Um, almost a one, -on one to one ratio, I think. Uh, reflect with complex reflections more than half the time as opposed to simple reflections. Ask mostly open-ended questions and avoid getting ahead of your client's stage of readiness, uh, doing things like warning them, confronting them, giving unwelcome advice, providing advice that they haven't asked for, uh, or taking the good side of the argument uh, about why it would be good for them to cut down or stop their substance use. Okay, I'm going to go over a few slides uh, that we pulled from a book the book is titled Behavioral Treatment for Substance Abuse in People with Serious and Persistent Mental Illness. And it has a chapter on motivational interviewing. And if you would like to, to get it, uh, I've got the, the authors and the publication date here for you, and it is available on Amazon. Uh, this will be on your handouts that you have of the slides. So in making some distinctions from traditional MI for people with serious mental illness. People with serious and persistent mental illness often have cognitive impairments that limit their ability to engage in abstract reasoning, limit their ability to make connections between past, present, and future events. So they often have trouble making the connection between their actions and the consequences of those actions. Uh, they may limit their ability to develop and pursue self-directed behavior plans over time. So the broadly client-centered style and goal of self-exploration of traditional MI is not likely to be as useful for many of them. So MI for people with serious and persistent mental illness is a bit more directive than traditional MI is. That more directive style leads clients toward the recognition of one or a few key factors that can serve as motivators for decreased substance use. 
Concrete positive outcomes might include avoiding arrest, getting back into or maintaining housing, or regaining custody of their children. The clinician reminds the clients of problems that are identified during the, the intake assessments rather than waiting for the client to come to their own realization. So whereas in, in traditional MI, we're like trying to facilitate the client coming to their own realization. In this version of MI, the clinician is actually going to remind clients of the problems that were identified rather than waiting for them to come to their own realization. It's important to do an assessment of the client's substance use during the past 30 days and their attendance at treatment. That treatment might be for substance use, for mental illness, or for both. And then the initial MI session will make use of that information. Um, I'm going to do one more here, and then I'm going to skip ahead to a few. Uh, the initial MI session, we might introduce the session something like this. Today, we're going to talk about your substance use and any changes you might be thinking about making in it. First, we'll talk about some of the things that may have happened to you as a result of using drugs. And then we'll talk about some of the information that you provided in the assessment that you completed. Finally, we'll come up with a substance use goal and talk about steps for achieving that goal. My hope is to help you think about your drug use and make any changes that you want to make in how much or how often you use. Then there are a number of slides. And again, you have these in your handouts um, that talk about the initial MI session. And then I've, I've skipped through a few of those uh, to get to this one, this one and the next one. So this is for the ambivalent client and the next slide is for the court mandated client. So for the ambivalent client you might say something along these lines. Okay, you've said that you're starting to think about reducing your substance use, but you're not sure about it. Let's come up with a small goal that you can do over the next few days that will give you the experience of doing that and see if cutting down is right for you. It has to be a goal that you think you can actually do. Once you try out this small goal, we can discuss how it went at your next session, and then we can figure out some other goals that are right for you. What do you think a good small goal might be that you could do and might help you figure out if reducing your drug use would be good for you? So it might use something like that with an ambivalent client. And then with the court-mandated client, you might frame it something like this. So you've said that you didn't go to any treatment appointments in the last month, and I know that you don't want your probation officer to send you to jail. Sounds like you then have a very good reason for coming to your appointments, not wanting to go to jail. Why is it important for you to stay out of jail? Give them a little time to respond to that. So it sounds like you really like to be free and make your own decisions. Is that right? I can understand wanting to make decisions for myself. So for you, staying out of jail means having freedom and making your own decisions. That sounds like an excellent reason to attend your clinic appointments. So why don't we start where we agree, which is staying out of jail. And if you can meet them where they are um, and form an agreement to at least say, okay, what do you need to do to not go back to jail? Um, then that may give you a, a jumping off point um, for an initial goal uh, and then for continuing in treatment with them.